Well, once again, open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 11. Some of you found yourself without power this week. Anyone not have power this week? Raise your hand if you didn't have power. Okay, how about the other way around? <laughs> Who had power? No, 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 we don't want to <laughs> judge anyone here. So we didn't, we, <laughs> there you go. Well, we didn't have power, and uh, so it was a little bit of fun, two days. Uh, one night we uh, got our flashlights out. Well, it's pretty much the only way you had light. Anyways, told some stories. And um, that kind of inspired me this morning to tell you a story. So you're in Mark chapter 11 and 12. Before we get into it, let me tell you a little story. And this story actually is one that Jesus told. There was a man that went to a plot of land and he looked at the land and surveyed the property. And it's in the Middle East and it was a rocky terrain, but he surveyed it and thought he could plant a vineyard in this property. And so this gentleman decided to take his son and his servants, and they started to take the, the stones and the rocks and the boulders out. That part of the world is very rocky. And they took those stones and boulders and began to make a wall around that large piece of property. In the middle of the property, they took some of those stones and boulders and began to build a tower up, probably about 20 to 30 foot high, that on the outside you could walk around and the top was flat. And so a person could stand up there, sit up there, and you could look over the entire property there and look out beyond the wall and see if there's any wild animals or anything else like that. And then this man decided that he was going to go to a part that was very... Uh, salt, was solid rock, very stony, solid rock, and hew out a wine press. And so it, there was a, a, a top part of the stone that was higher elevation, so he hewed that out probably about three or four inches deep and probably about five or six feet wide. And that was where they put the, the, the grapes, and they could stomp on them, and the, and the juice would run down. And so then he hewed out another lower part there where they would actually collect the juice there. And so he put a lot of work into this vineyard, and then planted the vineyard. So there it was complete with a wall and with a tower and with a vineyard with all the, the vines and then with a wine press. And it was all done. He went to town and he thought, okay, so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to get someone to take care of this. So he hired some tenants to oversee the, the vineyard and to, to, to bring the crop in. And this man went with his son and his servants. And they went a long journey and they went out of the country and lived in a house outside of that country. And when the season came for the time to harvest the grapes and to make it into wine, he sent a servant. And you imagine maybe the servant was, uh, took some wine, uh, took some um, skins that would collect the wine in, some, uh, um, some wine skins and take some camels and maybe would have strapped those on the camels and taken it from the, the master's house on this journey, maybe a couple of days journey to the, this vineyard where he would then collect the, the wine and bring it back for the Lord of the vineyard. And as this, this servant went on his journey, he came up to this vineyard and there would have been someone in the tower looking out, seeing this man coming from a distance with the, with the camels, with the, the vessels to collect the, the wine. And as they looked and saw him, they would have gathered together and these, these men would all come up to the top of the tower and look out and say, oh, they, there's someone coming at us. It looks like they're here from the master. And they thought to themselves, we put a lot of work into this. We're actually here. The master of the vineyard isn't here. And so they conspired to decide to send this guy back home. So you can imagine this servant coming up with his camels, coming to the gate, expected to be welcomed, to be able to collect the, the wine to the vats and take them back. And they meet him at the gate and they say, hey, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm, I'm the servant. I'm here from, from, from on behalf of the, from the authority of the, the master of the, of the vineyard. And I'm here to collect. And they say, you know what? We're in charge now. Go back home. You can imagine the servant going back home, dejected, rejected, going back to the master's house and saying, listen, I came all this way and, and they rejected me and brought me back and I'm empty hand. There's nothing that I have now. And, and the master how would he respond? Who's pretty angry? And so he sent another servant. And this servant did the same thing. Took the camels, took, took the vats, went on this long journey, came up to the vineyard. They would have been in that tower there and looked out and saw this caravan coming, ready to collect the wine. And they said, well, they obviously didn't get the point. 
And so they collected all the men and they went down to the gate and met the servant at the gate. And when this time when the servant came to the gate, they beat him. They kicked him in the face, left him bloody there, put him back on the camel and sent him back to the master's house. What do you think the master would have done when he received this man? He was practically dead. Well, this, this master took another servant and said, I want you to go and go collect. This is my property. I am in charge of this property. I demand to have what I am due. And so this servant, again, did the exact same thing. And this time when he came, they decided that they were going to kill him. And so in some way, they, they killed him. They put him on these camels, sent him back. And at some point, the master received this servant dead. What did the master do? He sent more servants till all his servants were sent and all of them either came back beaten or killed. And at last, the servant, the master, I mean, was sitting at his table, looking out his window to the east, to where his vineyard was, and at a loss for what he was going to do. And then he saw his son there with him. And he said, well, he is the rightful heir. He carries my authority. I will send my son to this vineyard. And so sure enough, just like his other servants, he sends his son. His son goes on this journey there to collect this wine. And as he comes over the hill and sees the vineyard, these men in the vineyard, they see him from a distance. And maybe they recognize the son. Maybe they recognize the caravan. But they say, this is the heir. And if we kill him, then this is completely ours. And this will send the message that we are the ones who are in charge of this vineyard. And so sure enough, when he comes up, he kill, they kill the son in the air. What do you think the Lord of that vineyard would do to those tenants? That's the story that Jesus tells in Mark chapter number 12. And this is a story actually to illustrate his point. And his point that he was making is that he is that son who has authority. And there's two worldviews that come clashing together when Jesus confronts these religious leaders. And that is that he carries the authority of God and they derive their authority from man. And if you look at Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, the last part of our text in Mark chapter 11, here Jesus approaches the Sanhedrin. They question his authority and they ask the question, where Do you get your authority from? Like, who does your authority come from? They're trying to trap him so that he will say it comes from God and he speaks on behalf of God. And therefore, they could claim that he was blaspheming because he made himself equal with God. And then in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, he tells a story to say, let me show you that I actually have the authority of this divine son. And then what happens in the rest of Mark chapter 12 is he He interacts with three different groups. All these different groups are actually a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men who ruled basically uh, Jerusalem and Israel. They were the ones that were in charge of the temple. It was the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. In fact, if you look down in verses 13 through 17, Jesus confronted the Pharisees. Really, they confronted him. But he comes back and he declares that he actually speaks with authoritative truth. And then you look in verses 18 through 27, you see the Sanhedrins. The third group, you see the scribes in verses 28 through 40. Then the last isn't actually a group, it's a person. And that's the very end of Mark chapter 12. And that's a widow lady, the lowest, most humblest person in, in that whole temple right there. And Jesus uses her as an example of a person who is truly submitted to God's authority and therefore is accepted by God. And so over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to look at is we're going to contrast the authority of Jesus with the authority of man. And particularly this morning, we're looking at Mark eleven twenty-seven through the end of this chapter and then the story at the beginning of Mark chapter 12. So I'm going to read through this passage. And would you stand with me? If you're able, would you stand as I read God's word in our text this morning? I promise you it's not going to be as long as Isaiah chapter five. But what you'll see, if you remember Isaiah five, is you'll see is that that's actually a parallel passage that Jesus uses to condemn the religious leaders. 
So Mark chapter 11, verse 27 says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, the Sadducees, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get the, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. And he sent, I mean, I'm sorry, again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. And he still and had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. And so they left him. And went away. Let's pray. Father, we don't just want to know your word. We want to know what you want us to understand from it. We want to understand your word. We want to see it lived in our life by faith. And so I pray for all of us in here. I I, I pray that you'll open our eyes to the truth. But God, I pray you'll give us grace to live it by faith. In Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. The story Jesus told here in Mark chapter 12 was really a parable that illustrated what Israel's leaders were doing to Israel. The vineyard represented Israel. They were to bear the fruit of righteousness. The owner of the vineyard was the Lord himself. The tenants were the religious leaders of Israel. And they didn't own the vineyard, but they were to tend it. They were to take care of what God had, had given to them. And the, and the servants of the Lord were God's prophets he sent to them. And so as you see through the Old Testament, what did the leaders of Israel do to the prophets of the Lord? Some they beat, some they killed, just like in the story that Jesus told here. And then Jesus comes as the Son of God, carrying the authority, authority of God, And they reject him by killing him. And and when they rejected the authority of the son, they also were now to face the accountability of the son and the judgment that was to follow. And so we're looking today at the authority of Jesus Christ. One of the controversies that you might find if you're into sports at all is in the NFL, the referees have been recently under controversy about making calls that are unfair. I don't know if you have any uh, Green Bay Packers fans in here or Lions fans. This is a, was a big one a couple weeks ago. And that was when the Green Bay Packers were playing, playing the Lions. And this is actually the call here that the ref made that some of you that are Lions fans. My wife's from Michigan, so I don't lean that way, but, uh, but I know people that do. And they feel like the Green Bay Packers were given the game by the refs. How unfair. Now, you might have a sport... And you might feel like that happened to your team at some point. 
in one of their games that the referees were on the wrong side or they unfairly represented what was happening in the field. Why is it that the players in this game and the coaches, though, even though they didn't, many of them didn't agree with the call, why is it that they followed what the referee said? Why did they submit to this referee? And it's because they recognize the authority of the referees, right? Everyone in that stadium and the players in the field and the coaches recognize that there is an authority on the field and they have the final rule about what happens. You can boo them, you can hiss at them, but they get to decide what happens. And think about just in a, in a game like this, we recognize that these referees have authority. Now, where do they get their authority from? I mean, did they make up the rules? Sometimes we think they do, but they don't. Where do they get their authority? From the NFL, right? The National Football League. And they are appointed, therefore, as the representatives of the National Football League to represent and to be really the appointed authorities. They are the authoritative representatives that speak and act on behalf of the NFL. And so we understand this in life, that there is, in many contexts, ultimate authorities who send representatives to represent their authority and the rules that they have put in place. So whether it be sports or whether it be with the government or, or the military or even in the home, we recognize that there are authorities in the home and they, um, they sometimes appoint people to represent them. And so the question we're looking at here today is the authority of Jesus Christ and the authority that really we base our beliefs and our views on life on. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus really steps into the temple, into the most authoritative place in Israel. He speaks to the Sanhedrin, the 70 men that ruled Israel. So he speaks to the most authoritative body or group of men in Israel. And Jesus acts like he owns the place. In fact, if you see that at the beginning of Mark chapter 11, he comes in as the Messiah King. He kind of does a survey on Sunday of the temple. Then Monday he comes back in and he, he acts like he's the one that's in charge of bringing judgment into the temple. He decides what's right and wrong. He clears out the people and he, that are ripping people off. He calls them thieves. He calls them robbers. He quotes the scripture. And so Jesus comes in and, and acts like he's the one in charge. Now think about that. Think about how offensive that would have been for these men who viewed themselves as the actual ones in charge. So it makes sense that they ask him in verse 28 this question. Look down in verse 27. The Bible says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders came to him. So here assembles the Sanhedrin, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So, so imagine a football game is taking place and a referee blows his whistle, makes a call. Someone from the stands comes down, jumps on the field and says, whoa, bad call. Reverse it. You know, the coaches, the referees, everyone would go, what authority do you have to say that and to challenge that and to change that? Well, they wouldn't have any authority. Let's say the guy said, well, I am the commissioner of football. I am Roger Goodell. Goodwell, is that how you say his name? Goodwell. Goodell, there we go. I mean, that would kind of change some things, right? I mean, if he's the one that was actually in charge of the NFL, I don't think that he'd probably ever do something like that. But that's, it sends what Jesus did in this situation. He steps onto the field. They're the referees, if you want to say. They're the Sanhedrin that are making up their own rules that benefit themselves. And he basically comes in and says, yeah, you guys are playing the game wrong. Like, you're actually unfair. You're actually not doing this right. And so Jesus here comes in as the authority. And so they ask him, what, really, what gives you the right to do these things and to say what you are saying? And the answer is obvious. He actually comes from the Father. God the Father has given him that authority. And he has authority in and of himself because he is God, one with the Father. This isn't the first time that this question of authority has come up. In fact, go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 22. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this was kind of the question. Because when Jesus taught, he taught with authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, 
Bible says when Jesus was teaching, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. If you remember the scribes, they taught uh, quoting rabbis and quoting different schools of thought. So the idea is like some people believe this and some people follow this and generally they followed tradition. Well, this is what the elders say we should do. But Jesus got up and said, thus says the Lord. And so there was a different authority that Jesus had when he preached. And so when they, when he preached and then he judged the temple, it was like, how can you do something like this? How are you able to teach and, and judge like this? And Jesus really spoke from two authoritative sources. One was the word of God, the scriptures. And so you see that throughout Jesus' teaching, he's always quoting the scriptures. And the other was his own voice. So you see two sources, but they spoke with one voice. And Jesus said basically that his, the scriptures were authoritative, but also his own words were authoritative. Well, how could that be? Because Jesus spoke for God and Jesus spoke as God. I mean, imagine if I were to get up here or really any time in my life and I got up here and said, I got a couple of opinions about things. I got opinions about some different foods and I got opinions about politics. And I got opinions about that. And really, I want you guys to know that any opinion that I have is God's opinion. It's straight from God. Anything I say comes from God because I'm one with God. Wow. Like that would be pretty blasphemous, wouldn't it? Right? I hope you think that. Right? If anyone ever says that, recognize that's blasphemous. Because anything that I say that is from God can only come as it comes from the word of God. And so when Jesus was saying this, you can imagine the shock that they had. It was like, what authority do you have to speak on behalf of God? And so look over in Mark chapter 2. Again, Jesus here, he not just speaks with the authority of God. He actually makes decisions that only God can make. He says, I promise to forgive this man his sins. If you remember the story, there's a paralyzed man and Jesus sees in his heart that he has faith in, in him. And so he says, I forgive you of your sins. And the Pharisees, they say, well, how, who has the right to do that? Jesus knew their thoughts as well. And so he says, the Bible says in verse 10 of Mark chapter two, Jesus says that you may know that the son of man has authority from God, as God, on earth to forgive sins, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and rise, pick up your bed and go home. So Jesus proved he had the authority to act and make decisions based upon the fact that he was acting as the authoritative representative for God. And look at Mark chapter 3. You see this again. I'm not going to go through this story, but this is basically Jesus defying the laws that they had established. One of them was no work on the Sabbath. Of course, what was Jesus' work? He healed people, which is kind of a funny thing to think about. They would consider that to be a work. And so Jesus heals this man. And in Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him to destroy him. Why? That's because he claimed to have authority over even their rules and in their religious system. So the question of authority was not a new one. And also them, their desire to destroy Jesus was not new as well. So go back to Mark chapter 11. And here we see the religious leaders wanting to know, like, where do you get your authority from? And again, remember, they were trying to trick him and trap him so that they could justify his execution. Look down in verse 27. Jesus responded to them with a question. And he, he did answer it, but not directly. He answers it indirectly. Verse 27 or 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. The word heaven there is kind of a synonym for, for God. In other words, it's a way to say God without saying the word God. It was a way they would respect God's name by saying something in its place. So what he's saying here is, was the baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? So from where did John the Baptist get his authority? And, and the conclusion there is, therefore, is that's the same place I get 
my authority. And so what Jesus is really doing here is he's saying, here's the dividing line in life. Either you get your beliefs and your opinions from God as your authority, or you derive it from man. He says, so where, who, where was that from? Was it from God or was it from man? See, God is the ultimate authority in this world. And every other authority must fall under him. And when, and when you or I or someone else acts or speaks in a way that is contrary to what God says, they actually are setting themselves up as the ultimate authority. In other words, you are therefore replacing yourself with God. So when we consider the authority of a group of people or the opinions of people or a set of belief, the real question is this, where does that person... Where does that group, where does that system, where do they get, derive their authority to say or to do those things? Is it from God, who is the ultimate authority, or is it from man, from man's own opinion? This really is the dividing line in the world today and really has been throughout history. Who, or I should say, what gives you the right to say what is right and wrong? What gives you the right to say this is true? And this is false. And, and, and the answer really is if God is the ultimate authority, then he has authority to say what is right and wrong. He has authority to say what is true and false. And therefore, he also has the authority to keep you accountable to his truth. And I, and I think what, what I really want us to get from this is today, whether you're in here without Christ, whether you're in here with Christ, Really, this right here can help you understand the world that you're living in and hopefully can help you understand your own heart. And really, the, I, when, you, when you look at what Jesus is teaching here and what's coming out of this passage, we see the idea that every one of us needs to examine by what authority do we base what we believe? What is the authority that you have for what you do and what you say and what you think? All religions... And all philosophies and all worldviews, they, they have a basis for their truth claims, right? They said this is the truth claim, and they have a basis for that. And the authenticity and validity of that truth claim is based upon authority. Like you look at all the isms out there. You look at pantheism and naturalism and atheism, agnosticism, feminism, communism, atheism, Buddhism, humanism, every ism out there has a basis for their truth claims. They have some type of authority. And it could be that they, it's something that someone has thought up themselves. It could be they've heard it from someone else. But the question really is this, by what authority do you do and say and believe what you, what you believe and what you say and what you do? What is the source of your authority? And I think about it like this, that when our authority comes from ourselves or comes from man, it looks something like this. A lot of cultures, people believe uh, follow tradition, right? They say, this is what my parents did, or this is what our ancestors did. And so that's the reason we do those things. So everything we, we think, everything we do is, is based upon something, right? You either made it up in your mind, you either... Someone either told it to you or, or possibly you read it in a book somewhere. So there's a basis for everything. And a lot of people think, well, you know, this is how I've always done it. Or this is what my parents taught me. Or this is what has been done in our culture or tradition for many years. And so therefore, this is probably the right thing. So the basis for their authority is what? It's on tradition or what's been passed down. One example of this is Roman Catholicism, right? So they have a tradition of what they do, and they say, you know, we, yeah, we have the Bible, but equal to that in authority is tradition, and also equal to that is what the Pope says. Now, tradition changes throughout the years, and the Pope has changed his mind, or different Popes have had different opinions. So those authorities have changed their minds, but that's kind of the idea, is they say, well, that's the basis of our, our authority. That's what we, why we do what we do. And frankly, a lot of religions are that way. And actually, frankly, a lot of even evangelical churches are they so that way. So we ask ourselves this question. Is that a solid foundation for authority? Or in other words, does that authority come from God or does it come from man? Sometimes people's source of authority is personal experience, right? They say, well, you know, one time I heard someone say this once or one time this happened to me and 
So sometimes we do base things off of personal experience, but personal experience is limited because you're one person. It's finite. And also it's open to self-deception. Sometimes we base the source of our authority on a teacher, a professor, maybe some, some people that we read in some books like Sigmund Freud or uh, Frederick Nietzsche or whatever. Some people that we are philosophers that we read. In our culture, frankly, in our, our, I should say this way, our, our shallow culture, we have a base of authority that is based upon what comedians and celebrities think, right? I mean, you ever watch those commercials where you have this celebrity that gets on there and makes millions of dollars? They're really good at reading lines on a screen. So therefore, they have the authority to tell us what we should do, right? And think about that. That's kind of crazy. Like, what, what basis do they have to tell us what to do? Well, they're famous. They make lots of money. And so you got to ask yourselves the question, where do they derive their authority from? And are they an accurate and a good source of authority? In other words, does their authority actually ultimately come from God? So the question of authority is foundational for our life and for our world. And as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, who is one but three, we believe he created the material reality and he defines all reality. And as Christians, we believe he reveals himself and the truth of this world in the word of God. So the word of God is the way that he communicates authoritatively to us about what his view of this world is, and how he wants us, therefore, to respond to him. And therefore, we look to the Bible as authoritative, and we look to God as the one to whom we're accountable. And the idea of authority and accountability go hand in hand. If you have someone to whom you're author- that's your authority, you are therefore accountable to them. I read a, a cute story about a teacher decided that, they were going to teach their kids in their class, in their Bibles, in their Sunday school class. They're going to teach them about this idea of authority and how God created the world. So they had a bunch of Legos, and they had a couple minutes um, left in class. So they, she said, okay, I want you to create different houses for these Lego people. We're going to create our own little city here. And so the kids spent about 10, 15 minutes making little houses for the little people. And then she said, okay, what we're going to do after that was done is we're going to make some rules for our, our city. What do you think are some rules that we should make? And one of the kids, you know, was saying, oh, we should be kind. Okay, what's another one? We should share our blocks with each other. Okay, yeah, we know why that's the case. And then what's another one? It's, you know, we should, uh, we should invite each other to each other's houses. So they made their own little world. And then she asked them, she says, pretend your Legos were able to come to life right now. And they were able to talk to each other. And they all decided to get together and say, you know what? I don't believe that these people who created me actually exist. And they denied you exist. And they said, I'm not going to follow their rules. What do you think you would do? One little boy raised his hand and said, I think I'd pull their legs off. <laughs> and, and even with, from a, from a you know, childhood illustration, there's a recognition, right? That there's authority. But also with authority comes accountability. Now... Fortunately, God is a lot more merciful than that little boy was. But as you, as you read and you think about the, the views of people in this world, and even really, frankly, as you think about your own views, really you have to go back to this question of what is the authority that we have for doing or saying or believing those things? And the next question is to whom, therefore, are we accountable? So notice in verse 31 how the Sanhedrin answer jesus they discussed it with one another saying if we say from heaven he will say why then did you not believe him but if we say from man they were afraid of the people for they all held that john really was a prophet so they answered jesus oh we don't know which wasn't true right and jesus said to them neither will i tell you by what authority i do these things the sanhedrin knew the answer John the Baptist claimed his authority was from God. The people knew it was from God. And Jesus, by virtue of the fact of this illustration, was saying, that's where my authority comes from as well. It's from the Father. John the Baptist preached that Jesus was the coming one. So why did they reject John the Baptist's message was from God? Because they'd have to receive his message as true, which means what? If Jesus was the coming one, they are to repent of their sins and follow Jesus. That means they would have to put themselves under the authority of Jesus and be accountable to him. And they didn't want to do that. 
They had their own rules, they had their own way, and they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And this probably is really the bottom line reason why people reject the authority of God, isn't it? Because they don't want to be accountable to God. They want to be accountable to themselves or whatever they think. So to illustrate this truth, Jesus then, after that, tells a parable, which hits them right between the eyes. It's the parable that I told you at the very beginning. And it's the idea that there, was, there were tenants, there were religious leaders who were in charge of God's vineyard of Israel. And they were to bring forth fruit, but they didn't do that. And when God sent his messengers, the prophets, what did they do? They killed, they rejected. The last prophet that God sent was who? John the Baptist. And then God sent his only son, his beloved son. And they rejected and killed him. And you can see that verse 6. Look at verse 6. The Bible says the Lord of the vineyard had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants, those religious leaders there said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And the picture here is clear. The Lord sent his authoritative heir, his son, but they rejected the authority of the son. And therefore, they were now accountable to the judgment that was to come. Look at verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? If you reject the son, if you reject the message, who are you rejecting? You're rejecting God. So what is he going to do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So here's a prophecy about what God was going to do, what Jesus was going to do even that week and with the next couple of weeks there. Before we talk about what that prophecy was, I want you to notice something and that Jesus is saying here, those who reject the son are rejecting God. It reminds me of of 1 John when John writes and he says, whoever has the son has life. So if you repent and follow Jesus Christ, the son of God, God promises that he gives you life. You have eternal life. But if you reject the son, then you don't have life. The Bible says that these things and the scriptures are written so that you might believe in his name, in the name of the son of God, and that you might know that you have eternal life. Yesterday we went out and we passed out some flyers to some of the people in the neighborhoods around here. And there was a couple people I talked to. One person I talked to, I talked to them about this very verse right here and share with them. Like they, they said, I don't know for certain when, what's going to happen to me after I die. And I said, do you know the scriptures were written so that you can know you have eternal life? And so those who have the son have life. Those who do not have the son do not have life. And so Jesus is basically saying that right here, that these These leaders have rejected me, and therefore they don't have life. But look at something also that's pretty amazing that he prophesies here. Look at verse 9. He says, he will destroy the tenants, so those are the religious leaders, and give the vineyard to others. So who are those others right there? Who are those others that he gives the, the vineyard to? Well, Jesus here opened the door to other leaders. And who are those leaders? I believe those were the apostles. Those were the apostles who, who also led the church. And so you have the apostles, and then after that, thereafter that, the church of Jesus Christ. So the Jewish leaders did not steward God's house at well, and therefore God gave the authority that he had over to the apostles and to the church. In fact, we see this in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus has his disciples go to Galilee, In verse 17, the Bible says that when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Who's the only person we're to worship? God. So they're recognizing that he's God. They worshiped him. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Like, I have all authority. I have the authority of God himself because I am God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in that same authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, in the the authority of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them 
to observe all things that I have commanded you. So Jesus held all authority and he delegated that authority to the apostles to authoritatively teach and act in his name. And now this stewardship has been given to the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. God seated Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly, heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power. In other words, Jesus has all authority and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus. In other words, he has authority over all and gave him as head of all things, over all things, to the church. So this is the organism that God is using in our world today to work. And Jesus is the head of this, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So as the church, we are responsible to steward and the, the authority of Jesus Christ. And we do that as we communicate the word of God and we, we act, we respond by faith under his authority. Sometimes as a pastor, people ask me, like, what right do you have to tell people what to do? And do you know what right I have? Absolutely zero right, right? The only right I have comes when I speak the word of God. So there's no experience, there's no knowledge, there's nothing that I can really give to you that is authoritative unless I give you the authoritative word of God. Anything I say that means anything that has any authority is solely, should be solely from Christ and communicated through his word. And so I believe when I am speaking the word of God, I want to be clear about it because if if God is speaking through the word, then I want to be clear about it, but also speak with the authority of the scriptures, the authority of the Lord himself, because that is what God has called us to do as a church and called me to do as a pastor. In fact, Paul wrote Titus, who was a pastor, and he says, listen, you need to, as a pastor, declare these things. What things? The truth of God's word. Declare these things, exhort, build up, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So it is my job as a pastor to, to take God's word and to, by, by the spirit of God and in much study, to communicate that word and, and to do so faithfully. And first of all, submitting myself to the authority of God and to the authority of his word. And therefore, then teaching you all to do the same. And so God wants us to live under his authority and we we recognize his authority and we hear from him as we read the word of God. So Christ is our authority and we are to follow his authoritative scripture scriptures recognizing too that we are accountable to him. You see if you're in here without Christ, you are free to reject the authority of Jesus Christ. But you're not free to escape the accountability that will come in judgment for your sin. You can refuse to submit to the Lord now, but there will be a day when you're, you will be accountable to the Lord and you will submit to him. And as a church, I think it's good for us to, to think about our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, our words, and to ask the question, are we... As disciples of Jesus, are we living under the authority of Christ, right? He created the world. He, he created this reality. He created the church and he, 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 Jesus died for the church and he rose again for the church. This is his organism. And so the question is, is are we living in line with what he wants us to do as believers and as a church? And the call of Christ, I really believe in this passage, is to submit our hearts to his authority, and to his authoritative word. In fact, look down in verse number 10. What's cool to see is that Jesus takes really this, this idea that he speaks with authority, and he speaks authoritatively through his word. And so what he does in verse 10 is he actually quotes the scripture. So in verse 10, Jesus says, let me give you the authority that I have to speak these things. It comes directly from God. Have you not read the scripture? 
the stone. So there, here he's going to quote Psalm 118, which remember, this is Tuesday. And on Sunday when he came in, what was the psalm that they sang as he came in? It was Psalm 118. So they sang this song to him, and he reminds them of it. In verse 10, he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus taught that God's marvelous work in this world was actually his own rejection. But it would also be the start of God's greater plan he had for this world. Look at verse number 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. They perceived correctly. And they left him and went away. So what's the conclusion of a, of a passage like this? What's the conclusion of, as we look at the contrast between God's authority and when man tries to set himself up as the authority? Well, I think Jesus wanted these religious leaders and really the people as they listened to evaluate the authority they had to do what they did and to think what they thought. And therefore, to also consider to whom they were accountable. So I think it's good for us to just think through our lives. It's good for us to think through what we do on a daily basis and ask the question, what does Christ think about what I'm doing? What does Christ think about what I'm saying? What does Christ think about what I'm thinking and what I'm believing? And, and you might think, well, you know, there's some things that God cares about. And there's a lot of things that God doesn't care about, right? Right? That's actually a very secular way to look at life. I don't believe the Bible gives us every answer in the world, you know, for everything that's true. But I do believe that the Bible gives us a foundation for truth about the reality of who God is, how he designed this world. And that foundational truth is the basis for understanding his world. And so if you want to understand how to live in, in, in relationship to God, then you need to understand what God says in his word. So that's why I think 2 Timothy three fifteen and 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God, is given by his Holy Spirit, and is profitable. What's it profitable, profitable for? For doctrine. That tells us what's right. You want to know what's right and wrong, what's moral and what's not moral? Go to the scriptures. It tells you what's right. And for reproof, it tells you what's wrong. You want to know what's wrong? Go to the scriptures. It tells you what's wrong. For correction, that's how do you correct something that's wrong and make it right again? That's the scriptures. And for training in righteousness, how do you keep going down the path that God wants you to go down? And that is, look to the scriptures, that the man of God, that's the person of God, may be complete. That the person that God wants you to be equipped for every good work. That means every part of your life. I believe Christ has an opinion on every aspect of your life. What you view on TV, what you view on the internet or YouTube, your words as a parent or a grandparent, how you do your work in school or at your job, what you think about, how you drive down the road, what you do with your money, how you treat your wife or your husband, the decisions you make each day. I believe Jesus actually cares about all those things and he has authority over all those things. And he wants you to look to his word to see how you can therefore fall under his authority and live by faith. Christ has authority over all aspects of our life. We come to him. We believe he's our savior and our Lord. He's the one who is in charge and should be in charge of our hearts. And therefore, we believe, since he's the authority, that we are accountable. You might be in here today, you might be without Christ. You might be thinking these kind of things and thinking, I don't, this is not something that maybe I've heard of before, or maybe it's not something I've, I've thought about before. The call that I think I really want to give to you is this, and that is to fall under the authority of Jesus Christ. Those religious leaders, they rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus throughout, uh, throughout that week, the very end of the week, they killed him. I believe some did come to Christ after his resurrection, but many of them didn't. And those who don't have the son, don't have life. If you don't submit to God and his authority and the person of Jesus Christ, then you 
will be separated from the Lord forever. So the call for us is come to Jesus, come to Jesus and submit to him as your savior and your Lord. Would you bow your heart and your head with me as we go before the Lord in prayer? Sometimes people look for maybe a special time to talk to God or maybe a special opportunity. But really, the call that Jesus makes in the scriptures is today is a day of salvation. In other words, today is a day to say, Lord, I come to you. I submit my heart and my life to you. If you're in here without Christ today, I invite you to do that this morning, to come before the Lord and Submit your life to him. And believers, we are to fall under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's good for us to ask God, God, search my heart. Look at my life. Help me to help me just to see clearly through your word how you want to rule my life for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we recognize that you have all authority. That you you proclaimed the truth of the word authoritatively. That you proclaimed the gospel with authority. You actually even judge with authority. And so therefore we fall under that. And we submit our hearts to you as believers. We say, you are our Lord. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing because you are a loving, merciful Lord. And you've given us the greatest gift of all, and that is yourself. And that is the gift that we get to be with you forever. We get to have a close relationship with you now and then in your presence for eternity. I just think there's, there's probably at least one, maybe a couple people in here who are without you today and, and don't know that reality. They have not submitted their heart to Jesus Christ. And so I guess the the prayer that we have this morning is, God, will you pierce their heart with the truth of God's word? Help them to recognize that you are the Lord. You are the God of all creation and you love them. And you want them to come to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we don't. We don't, God, want to see our friends and our family and those in this world perish. We want them to have the truth of God's word. So please humble our hearts and humble the hearts of those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.